the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I will be your host for today's nonprofit MBA podcast. For those of you who don't know me, I am co-founder of Financing Solutions. And Financing Solutions uh, has been around for 12 years. We are the leading provider in the United States of lines of credit for small nonprofits. And it's a I can't tell you how much demand this product is for nonprofits. They've always wanted it. Um, you know, we we uh, it's just a great product because, you know, if you if you have an issue with cash flow, it's great to have a backup plan. So if you're interested in learning more, uh, finding how much you qualify for, it's very, very simple. Just go to nonprofitmbapodcast.com and you can uh, learn a little bit more about us. Uh, today we have a sponsor. It's Arrays Fast Fund Online, which is a cloud-based accounting system specifically built for small to medium-sized nonprofits. You know, it's a great product. I, well, I'm on the board of two nonprofits, and one of them we just switched to Arrays. And if you're interested in learning more, you can visit their website at Arrays.com, A-R-A-I-Z-E.com, or call Joe at 866-840-7449. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Ellen Bristol from Bristol Strategy Group. Ellen Bristol is an expert in fundraising management. She is considered a thought leader for her work on managing fundraising performance, including the tight alignment between fundraising and marketing. She is also the author of three books on fundraising and strategic planning. Ellen is also the developer of the Leaky Bucket Fundraising Management Assessment and the Smart Way Tracking Dashboard, uh, which are two software products that support predictable, consistent income growth. Ellen, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. It's so great to be here. I'm very happy about it. Yeah, I feel like I have like a, this huge energy because it's like, I feel like I haven't done a podcast in a while, but I did, I did two last week. So it's, I, I don't know. Just, I, you know what it is? I think we, it's, it's sunny here and we have three torrential days of rain. And, you know, when you come out of three days where you feel like a duck, you know, and it's sunny out, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in my opinion, a, a good night's sleep will do that for oh, you. Oh, I know. I, I, it sucks, doesn't it? I mean, I'm 58 years old, and you know, as you get older, it's like you know, your priority is your sleep. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> holy no cow. No comments about age here because I'm older than dirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, stop. I want to stop talking about it. I want to depress everybody. But uh, let's get into today's topic: the yeah. keys to retaining your fundraising staff. And, you know, Ellen and I, is, as what happens to a lot of my guests, we start talking offline and I'm often have to say, well, let's save it for the podcast. <laughs> you know, let's so, uh, so, you know, we were talking about, you know, you know, retaining your, your, your fundraising staff and, you know, do you think retaining your fundraising staff is, it has a significant difference than retaining your other staff? I think that's one of the big problems nonprofits are having. Staff tenure in the fundraising department has shrunk to about 16 months. 
Now, when you stop and think about the fact that it takes your first month to find the bathroom, you know, and, and figure out what the organization's mission is and who's who to whom to what and how to use the, the CRM or whatever it is. Now you got 15 months left. And there's, I spent a long period of my personal career in sales and the, the received wisdom in those days, and I agree this is well over, 20, you know, it's almost 30 years ago. Um, it takes two years to learn your territory. So when your fundraising staff is turning over all the time, the rest of the organization is losing out on donor retention, donor engagement, um, innovative approaches, and moving transactional relations with, with funding sources to relationship-based relationships, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> Reporting my, repeating myself. So, uh, I mean, if, if you're delivering uh, substance abuse services or um, mental health services, you already know you can't be switching out social MSWs and, and, and therapists and so on every 15 minutes or the, the, the client will just fall back into their problems. But in order to hire and retain those heavy duty, those heavy hitter executives and service delivery people, you have to pay them decently. I think, um, Frankly, most nonprofits really lack the disciplines for recruiting the right people, compensating them adequately, and keeping them on board in the fundraising space. Yeah, I'm going to add a fourth to that category too, Ellen, and that is building, and I think it's the most important category, and it is building a system that a fundraising that uh, let's say fundraising relationship, a system, mm -hmm. a process that is independent of who is in that job. Well, I agree with you there because nobody's going to work at the same place forever. Yep. I mean, they're going to die. They're going to retire. Their spouse is going to hit the lottery and, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, there, there's a million things that go on. Or you, you know, you get you get career ambitions that can't be satisfied where you are. So, so there's always attrition, like there is in any other discipline in a business. So, besides wanting to hold on to talented fundraising staff as long as possible, you also need to have systems and. In this case, I'm talking about technology systems that will uh, contain as much meaningful information about the donors as possible. And this doesn't just mean, you know, what's their favorite sport and, um, you, you know, do their, did their kid have a bar mitzvah? I, it's... Like, what else do we need to know about them? 
do we know which communication channels they prefer? Do they want to get a phone call or an email or a note on LinkedIn? Um, how often do they want to be interacted with? And I could give a, a half a dozen other examples. So we have two types of discipline going on here. One type of discipline helps us retain the employees. Another type of discipline supports the employees by holding on to and giving access to a lot of uh, the, 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 the info, the intelligence, let's call it, that we have about that funding source. And I mean, whether it's a major donor, a grant maker, or a corporate partner or sponsor, whatever the term of art is these days. For one thing, what happens if somebody come, becomes ill or pregnant and they're off on a medical leave or a maternity or a paternity leave? Um, you don't let those donors sit around getting no communications. Somebody else has to step in. Yeah, I was going to say too, I think, you know, there's this throughout my career, this rule uh, that's known in business is, has always proven itself to be true. And that is 80% of the, your revenue uh, comes from 20% of your uh, people. Of your people. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, so, uh, you know, a good thing that I think the, for an executive director to do is maybe even switch it to a 90-10 rule. And that is you should know the 10% of the people who give you 90% of your revenue. The CEO should know those people. You should know them well enough. Yes, to be sure that they'll call back. Yes, you that, should know. And is, is is like that's the standard. I think it, it is. And then, your phone call. Yeah, I mean, because then if you think about it this way, if you lose your fundraising person, you there's a consistency there because you know those people. And I, I honestly, too, you probably. You know, I, I think a lot of executive directors are working so hard in their organization that, you know, you know, you forget the fun part. And it the fun part yeah. is usually speaking to people. Right. Yeah, and so, you know, you're too busy working in your job so much that you forget the people end of it. And yet now listen, you got there's three people, right? You have your donors, maybe there's four. You have your donors who are, you know, individuals. You have your employees, you have your the people you're helping, right, in the in mm -hmm. your cause probably. And actually in the fourth one I was thinking of is the people who are giving you uh, grants as well. Well, the, I would add a fifth based on your description, and that is, and, and it's becoming more popular, the corporations yeah. that are also giving you. Now, I'm not talking about businesses that buy a table at your gala. I'm talking about businesses that say, we want to get up close and personal with you guys and run the Acme widget the scholarship fund or whatever the heck we're going to call it. Um, I, I just wanted to 
go back to something you said at the beginning a moment ago, we actually are seeing an, the Pareto rule getting twisted from 80-20 to 90-10. Mm. There's a big downside to that that I just feel called upon to mention here. When you when you make most of your money from a few ultra wealthy people, it's very difficult to resist the urge not to pay too much attention to those of modest means. And almost inexorably, your organization starts to serve the ultra wealthy donors instead of serving the mission. Bad news. Now, what you're talking about is a different approach. You're saying the CEO or executive director should be up close and personal with those, with that 10%. And I absolutely agree. And then, and we've done a lot of this kind of work in the for-profit space. Uh, You know, just a few people get to talk to the CEO. And then a you know, managing director or or VP or EVP level person talks to the next group down and so on. So we're always sort of tilting the table. So there's an executive partner that almost every donor, no matter how modest is. Something I like to say about that has to do with stewardship. You always have a governing board the governing board and other volunteers can always find time to make one phone call a year to everybody who's ever given you one thin dime. So the question here is not just retaining fundraising professionals, having a good mechanism for retaining your employees almost invariably leads to greater donor engagement and therefore donor retention. There's been some very interesting work done done around this um, in a book called The Generosity Crisis that recently came out. One, One of the three authors is a guy named Nathan Chappelle, who's kind of the guru of artificial intelligence for the nonprofit sector. Um, anyway, he he they talk in this book about the sector's failure to create um, deep engagements with their donors, and that that is one of the leading reasons that donor retention is so dreadful in the sector ever since the Fundraising Effectiveness Project opened up in 2006, uh, donor retention rates have hovered somewhere around 40%, which is ridiculous because it means I have to to acquire 60% new funding sources year after year. Excuse me. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So, but how do we do that? In my book, the answer starts with providing, 
better discipline and better accountability to the fundraising staff. Now, I've been in business of one sort or another for practically 50 years. And almost all of that time, I've either been selling for someone else, selling for a major corporation, or selling for the business that I run. And I've learned a lot about what it takes. Um, in, in the research that we've done, you, you referenced, referenced our leaky bucket assessment. About 84% of nonprofits self-report that they don't have a true ideal donor profile. So basically, when they're in acquisition mode, they're throwing darts at a wall, not even a bullseye, you know. Um, they, they don't have, I mean, when I read this statistic about retention, I thought, how can this be? And what do I discover? There are no retention practices other than recommendations for tactics like having donor recognition event. You know what the simple way we 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 need to the simple thing we need to do? So let's pretend you work for me. I'm your chief development officer. Excuse me. I want to say to you, Stephen, this year, I'd like you to produce hundred dollars. Whatever. I'm being ridiculous in the numbers here. But out of that hundred dollars, I want I only want you to acquire thirty new dollars, retain forty old dollars, and upgrade the remaining thirty people to two from one dollar to two dollars. We don't do that. We don't do something as simple as saying your assignment includes these key performance indicators. So we are constantly falling back to um, transactional techniques, which some people thrive on them, but most true fundraising professionals want those relationships. They, they want not only to secure the donor's financial investment, but the donor's joy of having invested and seeing the mission, seeing impact on the mission. They want to get closer to those sources. And by the way, that includes um, those who are experts in grant seeking. Why wouldn't you want to get closer? to the program managers at a sizable foundation because eventually you work your way out of the just being another freaking applicant about whom we know nothing. And we get ourselves out of the grant application cycle. Ditto with corporate relations. So at the risk of blathering on here, what I'm trying to say is failing to provide compassionate forms of accountability and discipline to the people who raise money for our organizations 
is hurting the organization's brand. It's hurting its ability to grow and it's hurting its ability to innovate. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying. And I think what, you know, the summary is you need to have structure um, and, and for your fundraising professionals that are working for you. You need to say, this is, you know, what your role is. This is the KPIs and how you're measured. And this is how, you know, we should kind of go about doing this. And I go back to what the original thing I said is you, you want to build it independent. Listen, it doesn't need to be, you know, 20 things. You no. could just, you know, early on, you know, you could just say, okay, these are the three things I want to make sure that you're doing on a consistent basis. You know, and some of the things I could think of too is like, you know, you should have a list up on the wall. It should not be on, just in your computer, right? Yeah. Because that gets lost. You should have a list up on your wall in a part of your office. You know, I hope you have an office, but in your office where, uh, where it says these are the top 20% of our donors or, you know, you probably could put the 20% up there. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and then uh, you might even want to have that same list for the, the, uh, the list you, you probably don't have a lot of grants. So that's probably not a hard thing to, you know, no, you should do the same thing with your grants. With the I grants mean, as well. Yeah. I think every nonprofit should be getting every, uh, uh, Raising money from every possible channel. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, I you know, and then I mean, I, I, so I think that's one step that is as a, to me a no brainer. You know, I, you know, you can call that. You can actually like I've seen it. Uh, you can call it the fundraising room, right? Where you have some of these KPIs that you're going to put in here, and graph is it, and and assign if you you know, assign a an assistant. Saying I want this kept up on a month-to-month basis. Precisely. You have a couple of KPI things. You have a couple. You have a list of your top donors and how much they've given over a year period. Uh, people who've you know uh, maybe people who've fallen off to stuff like that. But that's that's one thing. The, the second thing I think I would do is, um, geez, I forgot what was the second thing I was going to say. Uh, is oh yeah, I was going to say a list, and and maybe Ellen, I don't know if you have this on your website or any of the books you've written or anything. A list of the top ten things we should know about each one of our donors. Yeah. We should know if they have kids. We should know what uh, number one. Why do they donate to us? That's the critical right? thing. Yeah, um, we we've been working on this issue of the ideal donor profile virtually ever since I figured out this stuff. And um, right now it's just a spreadsheet, but we, we ask, we want to know three sets of information. Uh, one set of information is facts. If gender or ethnicity is an, is an issue, you want to know that stuff. Um, you want to know their net worth or their wealth profile, but you also want to know something about their giving history because we know very well people of modest means may be more generous than some people who are extremely wealthy and give a pittance to charity. Um, so, so we want to know that stuff. We also want to know stuff about their motivations for giving. 
I think in some ways that might be more important than whether they have kids or they dress their dogs for various holidays. You know, that's fine to know, but I think what's more telling is what do you give to charity in the first place? Why do you give to a charity like ours? Why do you give to us? You know, what motivated you in the first place? What keeps you motivated? I'm all in favor of the dogs and the sports interests and all that other stuff. But I think what's really telling is that stuff. A third category we always want to look at is what are the characteristics that we don't want? A lot of talk and no action, a demand that they get more recognition than their gift justifies. Um, you know, one of the things I often throw into uh, uh, a sample of the ideal donor profile is you're running a scientific organization and the person is a flat earther, right? You, you, you don't want obvious mismatches. Yeah. Um. And then after that, I think if you started out with just three key performance indicators, how much do we need to, how many donors do we need to acquire? And we have a target for that. And how much money they're worth. So, so each of these KPIs has two targets, number of donors and amount of money. Yeah. We need to have KPI for retention. So if you're currently retaining 40% of your people, what do you have to do differently to retain 50 or 60? What, what is the target that somebody should be retaining on a year-by-year -year basis? What, is, what do you think is so the – average? If the average right now is 40 to 45%, for heaven's sake, ask for 60%. Right, ask so you, for 75%. Well, let's, so, so let's say if if, if – what should someone's benchmark be? Should it be sixty five percent? So if I I think I think realistic, we can't make a blanket assumption. Yeah. Okay, because it depends a lot about how big the following the client's database of donors is today. If it's a brand new nonprofit, if it's a very established nonprofit, um, if they have any individual donors. I mean, maybe it, so, so it's an, it depends. What I will say is that any nonprofit who expects to thrive when they depend on two major grants and one modest grant is going to work themselves out of business pretty fast. Yeah. Um, so first find out where you are, then explain, then ask people. What should we do differently? What are, you, you know, and, and what, yeah. what I find is it's just like business. In, in business environments, you, you just say to people, this is what's expected of you. And come to us if you're having trouble achieving it. I mean, a compassionate manager doesn't say, well, you didn't do it out the door. They intervene earlier than that and say, it looks like you're having trouble meeting this KPI. What's wrong? 
don't you know how to do it? Are you afraid of doing it? Don't you get the leads? What, whatever the heck. There are a million causes. But what I've found over the years is that when we just say to people, improve your retention by X percent, suddenly they figure it out. Yeah, you know what's interesting, uh, you know, what dawned on me too is like, I mean, I'm always, I'm so goal, goal oriented. I always want to yeah. have something to shoot for. But, you know, in, in general, when you put time into something, generally it always happens, the results improve. Precisely. So you don't even need to have a goal, you know, initially. You know, you need to, and listen, the, the old adage is those things that get measured. Get get improved or managed. You know that's the word. Uh -huh. You know, really managed. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. 100%. So I mean, if you don't have these systems in place right now, if you don't have the KPIs in place, that's a good place to start because it's just yeah. going to start putting it in it. You know, I want to ask you this. For we have about five minutes left. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to ask you this question. <clears throat> From your experience, what is the number one reason why fundraising uh, professionals are you know, I, I don't want to use that. I don't love that word professionals, but fundraising employees, that's a better word, leave. Yeah. Why do they leave? What's the number one reason? They get no, or they get no management or they get unprintable management that I'm not allowed to say on the air. Oh. <laughs> Starts with an S, ends with a Y. Yeah. Okay. They get um, hired to do one thing be a major gift officer or start a major gift program is a good example. And then 15 minutes later, somebody comes in with their hair on fire and says, we're having our gala next Tuesday and nobody's replied and we don't have any sponsorship. So fix it. So I think the reason people leave jobs, they're underpaid, they're asked to do far too much work and they get very little management support. And the fourth thing, God love our boards, but sometimes they will attempt to intervene in what I'll politely call naive ways. Quick, run a golf tournament, a bingo night or something, which is, need I go on? Yeah. Not a great idea. Yeah. I, mean, I know that... Um just so you, so everyone should know the uh if you have higher turnover in general than other nonprofits it's a function of management it's not a function of pay it it's never not, it's is not, exactly it's, people don't want to move um if if they are working for a good organization because yeah. they are worried that if they go somewhere else it will not be as good and that's the number one thing. Uh, no. so, you and I are 100% aligned on this. It's, I would go so far as to say it's never or almost never the fault of the employee. And it's always or almost always the fault of their immediate yep. supervisor or something up the line. Yep. So- and that's what this whole conversation has been about from my perspective. We don't hold our staff accountable, but we can't because we haven't told them what we've expected yeah. of them. 
And I, I, I agree with you too, Alan. I, I think that I don't even like, I don't want to leave everybody with this uh, podcast and thinking that you have to hold people accountable. That's not the number one priority. The number one priority is you have to have systems and processes in place. And then after that, then you can go and start, you know, working with people and making sure that they're, 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 I don't even like the word accountability in this example. No, um, because it's bad yeah, connotations. Yeah. I, I just, I believe in collaborative, more management. I, I don't, I've never told anybody that I work with, uh, work, I'm sorry, not work with, but I usually, there's an attitude uh, where I am. <laughs> I never feel like someone's working for me. I feel like I'm working in collaboration with my employees. Precisely. Um, and, and, and that, I never want to tell anybody they have to do something. I want them to understand why we should be doing it and that they want to do it. Uh, they, I want buy-in. That's the word. That's the word you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what I've meant by accountability because what we want to do is be able to go back to the board from time to time and say what well, we can't do very well now. Here's our forecast. It's based on careful data. Here's our level of achievement. Here's our ability to have made impact on our mission. These are the things we're able to do. And these are the standards of greatness or excellence to which we're holding ourselves. And if we do that, chances are better than good that we'll have mission impact. If we don't do that, we're scrambling. Yeah. And I think it comes down to the idea too, that if your organization is not uh, very good at fundraising, you're just not going to be around for very long. It's, it's a, almost the number one determinant of success of your, I mean, it's that's kind of a no brainer, but I, I can't yeah. imagine not having a, a def- really very well defined fundraising uh, process. Unfortunately, the reverse is true. Wow. The so where, more, where is the effort going into in, in for nonprofit? It, where yeah. if they're not putting the, the time and process they're putting effort into activity. They they manage to get ways to look busy. Example, a former client of ours had a lot of junior people in their major gift department, and these people would would like drive 400 miles to go to a donor to pick up a check for $500 and then drive back to the office. That's busyness. It probably took that guy a day to be busy to pick up a check for 500 bucks, but that didn't forget gas and wear and tear on the car. That didn't pay for the cost of lost opportunity. So it's hard to answer your question, what one thing. So I'm going to say the one thing is failure to manage. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that's the summation here of this whole podcast is you have to be involved. You have, you to, be have involved, to be involved. Right? Take, take a big corporation, any Fortune 500 corporation. They're only there because they make X money. But once you peel back the covers, 
they've got tons and tons of systems and processes and they're looking at their processes and they're doing root cause analysis and they're doing lots of sophisticated management stuff so their people feel they're being heard they're being listened to they're being provided with the right tools and materials to get their job done and we come to nonprofit land and we step into a yawning gulf of, you know how to do this. Go for it. It's just not good enough. Well, we'll leave it off at that. It's, you know, <laughs> it's really a good ending to what, we're, what I think this podcast was kind of about. I'd like to thank so very much Ellen Bristol from Bristol Strategy Group for coming on today's podcast. And if you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app because we've had so many great guests like Ellen with over 400 episodes now. So and if you like today's podcast, please also give us a five-star review. It really helps us get the word out. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can uh, go to our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Ellen, if anyone wants to reach out to you, how will they go about doing that? Um, you can find me at Ellen Bristol on LinkedIn and just send me a message or email me, Ellen at Bristol Strategy Group. Or check out our website, bristolstrategygroup.com. And it's B-R-I-S-T-O-L uh, for correct. everybody. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Ellen, for coming on today. My pleasure. So uh, I just want to thank everybody, not so much for listening. Thank you for that. But I just want to thank all of you um, who are listening, who are trying to make the world a better place. Um, we, we definitely need your help. Um, when I say we, I mean the world needs your help. But I also uh, want to remind everybody out there that you're no good to your family, your friends, your uh, your employees if you don't or take yourself. care of yourself first. And that means, of course, eating right and exercising, take time for yourself. Uh, you, you need to think of yourself as number one. I don't care if you have kids. I don't care if you have a, a spouse or whatever. You're no good to them if you're burnt out. And um, and I think it affects everybody uh, really bad. So, you know, thank you for the work that you're doing. Just remember to take time out for yourself. Other than that, I want to thank everybody for uh, listening to the Nonprofit MBA podcast. Uh, today was a great episode, as it usually is. And I thank Ellen for that. Everybody have a fantastic day. 